0: today i'm very excited to have a special guest on on site nate burkus who is considered one of the top designers in the world constantly and consistently one of ad 100's top Uh, he has done incredible work Uh, we've worked with him personally on some projects one of our top agents emily bear has sold him and jeremiah and his family a couple of homes and It's a great honor to have you on the podcast today, Nate. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.
1: And I I have to say, Emily Bear is not only, in our family's opinion, the best real estate broker in Manhattan, but um, is also a a dear and incredible friend. And um, she even helped us navigate some real estate issues that we had in Los Angeles, just in terms of like emotional support. We were like, we just need to call Emily. She knows how to do everything, everywhere. It's fine.
0: I couldn't agree more. Um, Yeah, I mean, she's an incredible asset to core of the company and just a great human being as well. I'm going to start there with the first question, which I really never ask. It's a little bit selfish of me, but how important is it to have a great real estate agent in the process of uh, finding a home?
1: Jeremiah and I, in fact, our our townhouse that Emily sold to us just recently was just ran in, in, in Architectural Digest, and I humbly and openly said to the writer of that story, I will never be a person who calls anything a forever home again, because my husband and I have moved probably 15 times in the seven years that we've been married. And I would say 95% of those transactions were handled by Emily, um, many of them going on at the exact same time, selling two or three places to move into one upgraded place and then selling that to Find something that Emily found for us off-market. You know, I look at all these ads for sort of representing yourself, selling your own home. And I think of all the mistakes that we would have made had we not been under the guidance of Emily Bear or a talented real estate broker. You know, I, I used to say I would never cut my own hair. I would never list my own house. Well, now during this pandemic, I've cut my own hair, but I would still never list my own house (laughs)
0: <laughs> I don't know which is more difficult I think cutting your hair might be more difficult but um, kudo, kudos to you um, <laughs> and thanks for that plug um, just for the record I did not pay Nate or set that up at all that was uh, purely spur of the moment so you know being a real estate agent is an entrepreneurial business right you don't have anyone kind of telling you where to go you've kind of be, have to be very self-driven motivated And I think your line of work, there's some similarities, you know, creativity. Um, You started your own firm when you were 24 years old. I did, yeah. So you were young and foolish or what happened?
1: I was young. I was unaware of, I think, how difficult and how many things need to be done to properly run a business. But I'm grateful that I didn't know... What I didn't know then, because I think you know the the timing is ripe for people to start small businesses, to start businesses that really reflect their passion. I think we all love when we when we see people out in the world and you know that they're doing the exact thing professionally that brings them joy. It kind of seeps into every interaction, um whether with clients or suppliers or vendors. and, you know, at 24 years old, I didn't want to work for anybody else. I've never really loved being on anyone's schedule. I used to work for an auction house. That was my first real job based in Chicago. Uh, I'll never forget the sort of house rule was every Monday morning, there was a meeting at 8am. And if you were late to that meeting, the owner of the company charged you five bucks. And I was, you know, in my early 20s, and thinking, wow, like, if I have to give them five bucks every week, I can't take a taxi to work that day. <laughs> and, and every Monday without fail, I would walk in with a $5 bill in my hand because it just was so hard for me to to stick to someone else's timeline. So I really right. started the business because I wanted to work for myself. I grew up around design. My mother was an interior designer um, when I was a child. So, you know, I was constantly helping her carry wall covering books and things like that. And it, More importantly, I was taught at a really young age the value of finding beautiful, either vintage or antique things to create a room that had depth and soul and felt storied and felt assembled over time. And though my mother and I have vastly different design styles, I grew up around old things, things that had been rediscovered, repurposed, reinvented. And I think that that was also a huge motivation for me at 24 to say, you know what, I, I think I can do this. How hard can it be? Get a couple of clients. Don't be a liar. Do a good job.
0: Admit what you don't know. Lead with creativity. And we'll see where this goes. That's been my mantra as well. It's like I always say to people, you know, if you do what your parents tell you to do, you should be successful. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Be honest. Be on time. <laughs> work hard. You know, all of the things our parents tell you. <laughs>
1: exactly. All of those ground things. rules. Yeah, All the playground
0: rules. Exactly. So let me ask you, do you think being a great designer is something that is learned or do you think you intrinsically have it and it's genetics and you're just born with this God given talent almost like, you know, because I think being a great designer is more of an art than a craft or maybe it's a combination of both. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I would never want to discourage anyone out there listening to us right now, Sean, who has a true passion for design. And the truth of the matter is that the industry is broken into all different echelons, not that different from residential or commercial real estate. I mean, there's the people sort of who are at the top of their game and they're recognized for their creativity and they're recognized for their talent and do incredibly spectacular interiors that, you know, as other designers, you look at and think, wow. How is that concept born from someone's just pure creativity? And then there's a lot of people who call themselves decorators or designers, and they sort of see an image and they replicate that image and they've got decent taste and they're able to pick some paint colors that match, but it's not pushing the envelope, pushing the industry forward. And for me now at 48 years old, having had the company for 25 years, I do think that design is inherent. I do think that it's, it may not be genetic, but I do think that it's something that is a skill set that you can improve upon through education and experience, but you sort of either have it or you don't. I always, you know, I used to feel bad saying that out loud, but I I, I also, like, if you gave me a bag of noodles and a pot and some water, I would be, like, staring at it for three hours. Like, I, I truly, like... I can't do (laughs) anything but what I know how to do well. And, you know, I think that that's okay. I think that that's what is so beautiful about society and beautiful about people that we all, I wish we all had the opportunity to truly do what we're good at and do what we enjoy. But, um, you know, I don't don't make dinner for my family because they would just, there would be a revolt.
0: (laughs) No, but you do make beautiful homes and you do make environments that make someone feel a certain way in a very positive way. So what is that process like for you? You know, forget about you and Jeremiah and your family, because I think designing for yourself, you kind of know what you want. And it's a very personal thing. Mm -hmm. When you have a client who hires you for a project, what is your process? How do you start? Because you almost have a blank slate. And then what does that look like?
1: Well, you never really have a blank slate. Any designer worth their salt knows which questions to ask in an initial meeting or at the beginning of a project. And those questions range from who do you aspire to be? What images or what places have you seen that resonated with you? What is the absolute fantasy of how you'd like to live in terms of color and shapes and styles and references or places to or countries that sort of have always intrigued you and then a good designer is able to take that information and figure out how to do something wonderful within a re- realistic budget or time frame or within the confines the client sets for that relationship. The process, though, has is, is always been as interesting to me as the ideas. I was a sociology major in college, and I had a sociology and French degree. Looking back on that, it was like, arguably useless, but at the time, what am I going to do with that? I'm going to, you know, read Susan Faludi and then translate it into French for, you know, it was just like a very weird um, thing to study, although it was riveting Mm -hmm. to me. And as a designer over all these years, I've spent so much time utilizing everything I learned about sociology, everything I learned about how people operate, everything I learned about how to anticipate people's priorities or hot buttons or how they might be feeling. And the French has come in really handy as well because I can pick up a phone and call an antiques dealer in in France and have an honest conversation about the provenance of something and figure out how to bypass, you know, some ridiculously expensive global shipping option. So it's, you know, it's, it's also been really helpful in that way. But I think the process in and of itself, is you get sort of the nuts and bolts from the client, and then it's your job to amaze them. It's your job to get them excited. And by excited, they have to feel connected and understand the why. And I've always felt in business and in life, if you can't explain why you're telling somebody to buy something or why you're suggesting something, then you really don't have any business suggesting it.
0: So how much of your design inspiration comes from your inspiration as opposed to the client's inspiration that they're trying to channel through you as their vision of what their place should be and what their home should look like?
1: I would say probably the initial 50% of what the client shares with us goes into account while we're assembling our very first design presentation. And that 50% is really important. It's about how they anticipate living in each room, It's how many people are in their family, how often they entertain, their cultural heritage, the items that may have been passed down from from generations that they wish to live with and incorporate in a new interior. But the second 50% is what we and what I come in to do. And that is to take that information and use 25 years of vision, travel, experience, ideas, creativity, different dealers from around the world, different people that make things from around the world, whether it's embroidery for a wall covering or a dining chair or a pottery, and educate the client and say like we're you know we're gonna hold hands and go through this process together and you may have never heard of this this Bavarian dishware company or porcelain company, but I want you to know about it because some of the things that you're leaning towards, feels like this is what you should be eating your dinner off of every night. And so that process, that exploration of, of form and color and provenance and style and influence is that second 50%. And that's, I think, where the
0: magic comes in. I mean, you've worked around the globe on projects almost everywhere in the world. How much does the place you're working influence the ultimate design of what you're coming up with and finishing as an end product. and which is your favorite city to work in and why is it your favorite city?
1: My favorite city to work in is probably Manhattan because it's just so complicated to get anything done. And I feel like once you master that or come as close to mastering the rules of how to do a renovation, a good renovation or install a great design in in, in New York City. When you get a big job at a suburban house in Florida, it feels like you've been invited to the fair to like relax, right? And just chill out, you know. It's, so it's, you you it's, like it's just, the
0: challenge <laughs> of Manhattan. You I love, love the challenge. challenge
1: of Manhattan. I love the architecture of Manhattan. I love the surprise when you get off the elevator and walk into this incredible space that doesn't look like it could be there. I love when you. I was on your Instagram the other day, and I was looking at. I think it was a penthouse on Barclay street. And it's the sort of Beaux-Arts kind of soaring ceiling. And I have a couple of clients like that right now in Manhattan that, that have this like incredible, incredible spaces and 30 foot high windows. And you're just like, wow, that's what it looks like up here. This is phenomenal. So New York for me has always been about the mystery and the architecture and, you know, sort of modern life going on in, in some, in some very old places, and I think that that's fascinating. In terms of where I've worked around the world and what's been challenging about that, our philosophy is to use many old things in every interior. Sometimes a client has that. Sometimes we have to source that and find those objects, whether it's furniture or architectural salvage or restored tiles or old fireplace mantles or columns, whatever it is. But we tend to use a lot of old things because of the patination and the finish and the story that we don't think can be replicated by using new. And what's been funny is like, for instance, you would think that Milan where I've worked would have incredible vintage furniture, but they don't. There's like seven dealers that sell largely mid-century furniture and very few antique shops in Milan. But then wow. I discovered during that project that there's a flea market in Parma that is not every every day, but it I think it's quarterly. And Parma's an hour from Milan. So you know believe me when I tell you that I canvass those airplane hangers, searching for everything under the sun, and it 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 has become like my favorite flea market of all time, trumping Paris and Athens and London and everywhere else that I've, I've shopped. So it's, it's interesting. You have to sort of get your feet wet in every new spot to figure out how you can craft a space that really brings the best of, of what you can find. And sometimes it's really difficult. Toronto is another place, very few vintage and, and antique
0: sources. How much of the outside of what's going on on the city street influences what you bring into the apartment with you? The people and the personalities
1: residing inside are much more important than the actual location. I've never really been a snob about design or decoration. So, you know, if we're working on a home in the in the Midwest and somebody wants the feeling to feel very coastal inside, we'll do it. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to do it as long as it's done well. I think that some of the most interesting interiors historically have always been when you go completely against the actual architecture. Um, it makes me think of Andre Putman in Paris in the 1930s and 40s, working with these like incredible interiors and typical sort of Parisian grand apartments with all with the 30 meters of moldings and plaster relief and, and ironwork and using very spare, very minimal pieces and few of them and you know that balance or that that juxtaposition is something that for those of us who who notice design and and enjoy design now take as very typical of course you can put you know minimal you can do a minimalist interior in a Beaux-Arts apartment building or apartment but at the time it was revolutionary.
0: I'm going to address the white elephant this pandemic that we're all living through which is, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime global event. And, you know, I think it's reshifted everyone's mentality about where they are and the significance of home and what home means to them, in addition to the fact that I think a lot of people now are considering maybe working from home a lot more than they have <clears> before. And I think, you know, it's kind of like been a bit of a reckoning and a soul-searching moment for a lot of people. I know for me personally it has. Yeah, and, for you me know, as well. yeah, so so, what does that mean to you? How's it shifted your focus in thinking? And then, you know, second part of that question is, you know, we work very closely with developers looking at homes of the future, trying to identify what buyers um, and what, what homeowners want and what the home of the future looks like. Mm-hmm. And you're obviously very in touch with us. You're speaking to people, you know, every day you're designing homes for them. You're experiencing this yourself. You have a family. Uh, I don't know if you work from home. But, you know, how how has this changed your thinking? And then what does the home of the future look like? What trends are you seeing? And how has this shifted things? I know it's a huge question, but, you know, it's kind of all connected. For me, our
1: homes should tell our stories. And the way that we do that is through our things and the the decisions that we make. And I've always believed in that philosophy. I have always, regardless of times, in times of, of excess and peace and largely without fear um, or uncertainty, I've understood the importance of home. Now being in self-quarantine with my immediate family and a couple of select other families, that has reinforced something that I've always known. Our homes really matter. They've always mattered. The, The way we live the way our homes rise up to greet us, the way that they protect us, the way that our memories are captured, the scuff marks on the table, the marks on the countertop, the memories attached to that, the objects that our eyes land on when our, our eyes travel our spaces should be things that remind us of who we are and what's important to us and the places that we've been and the people that we love and the places that we aspire to go. And so this pandemic, I think, has done almost exactly what 9-11 did in terms of the design community and the importance of of home. Um, You know, after 9-11 happened, I remember bringing my entire team over to my home in Chicago at the time and saying to them, it's over. You know, we work in a superfluous business. We sell fabrics and sofas. No one's going to care about anything being pretty. Everybody is absolutely in shock. I can't see our company, you know, ever recovering from, from something like this. And I've never been more wrong for the exact reasons that you just listed. Everyone was home. International travel was was really not on the table for for most people. Non-necessary travel was people were opting out of taking vacations. And what happened was is they were staying home and they were looking around and they were hopefully appreciating the things that had been done well. And knowing that other things could be better, and my firm and I are are seeing that now start to shift because we have clients calling us and saying, you know how we said we never really it didn't really matter those two guest rooms in our home or that extra that spare room. Well, do you think that we could work on that remotely together? Because we've had nonstop people over here, and we would love to feel better about how that space looks or that library that we created all the custom millwork for that originally just had a sort of a decorative desk in the center of it. Now we're redoing things so that it becomes a soft place to land. It becomes a little lighter, a little happier, a little brighter because the client's spending eight hours a day in there on the phone or on the computer. So there's going to be a lot of changes in design. I think it's a terrific time for people who love design to sort of hang out a shingle and say, hey, friends have asked me to help out with this. And now I'd like to actually transition into doing this for real. I think for me and for my firm and for some of the other established firms, keep the creativity up, keep the research going, keep the imagery going back and forth between team members, keep the inspiration flowing and moving and that energy moving. Because um, I think that we're going to be in another big, moment where the focus on home is, has, has never been more important.
0: And and do you see one particular trend that we should pay attention to? Like, is it like the home office? You know, I mean, how many Zoom calls? I don't know how many you've had, but I've had like 10, oh, yeah. you know, just this week where I've had like noise and interruption and, you know, and yeah. I, like my background and it's, you know, whereas this thing may be more ingrained in my future, I'd want that set up a little bit differently?
1: I think that because we're spending so much time at home and have spent so much time at home, we're really becoming much more practical about how we're using our space. And the questions that we're starting to receive from clients are sort of, did we need that like super fancy room that's 80% of our square footage that is for entertaining large groups of people? Or should we redraw this and create a really beautiful parlor or salon and split that room into a couple of different spaces that are, you know, have iron and glass doors or vintage doors that separate them so that we can sort of use our spaces more practically without sacrificing aesthetic, the aesthetics of them. I mean, of course, now, if you ask, we have you know several different licensed products that we sell my husband and me and and me with different partnerships. and our our furniture partnership through living spaces in in on the west Coast, they're seeing a huge surge in um, the sales of all their home office categories and much less in formal dining room, as I'm sure you can imagine. So you know there there's trends that I think are being dictated to us, but I think the most important, trend that's really happening right now is that I think the consumer is really finding their voice and finding their confidence about how they want to live.
0: Is there a room in your house you spend more time in than others? Yeah, other than the, other than the me, bedroom,
1: hopefully yeah. you're
0: sleeping, you know, 10 hours a night. And <laughs>
1: you know, Yeah, I wish. I'll let you know when that happens, <laughs>
0: Um You know, the, we have a, sort of a screened-in
1: porch that has become a real sanctuary for us. You know, one of the things that is so special is this reconnection to nature, hearing the birds, all the different birds. I usually go on runs in the morning and I take out my headphones for the last sort of quarter mile just so I can hear all the birds. And I have two children under five years old and as much time as we can spend outdoors. That's actually we're we're sort of running from our interiors at the moment. But um We just took our our dining room at our our house out here in Long Island. We just took our table and chairs out and put them in the basement and turned it into a playroom for the children because it's off the kitchen. They really didn't have a place to go where all their things were sort of contained and easily accessed for them. And my husband and I, you know, two interior designers who it matters very much to us what our house feels like and looks like and it's constantly evolving. We were like, yeah, we're gonna look at, you know, multicolored plastic till further notice because it's more important that our kids have this space to go where we can kind of monitor them.
0: Wait till they get a couple of years older and you'll start doing the padded walls. Yeah, no, no,
1: please, <laughs> believe
0: me. Exactly. So, you know, I did a, a TED talk where I kind of came up with a concept where I believe that, you know, everyone can benefit from time where they have nothing to think about, where, you know, I believe that the brain, when it's at rest, kind of like, you know, there's a reason why we have our best ideas in the shower. It's because Mm -hmm. our conscious mind, we're not (coughs) being reactionary, we're not thinking, we're not distracted. It's our mind is let free to kind of think and create, and I call it the freedom to jam. Very Mm -hmm. much like being a jazz musician, kind of when you're in that moment of improvisation. And, you know, you're, you're an artist you know, there's four of you in the home, you've got two kids, you're running, both you and your husband are running an incredibly successful business. Do you set up structured time in your day to kind of free up your mind to create? Do you have a system in place where you can help your productivity and creativity? Yes,
1: and my husband does too. And I actually really admire my husband's and I don't admire my own nearly as much. Mine is, as you mentioned, my best ideas absolutely come in the shower. Um, so you have two, so hour, show-
0: two hour showers <coughs> a day. I, do. I just live in the shower. <laughs> I
1: actually just stepped out of the shower so we can do this interview.
0: I appreciate um, I'm getting,
1: it. I'm, I'm getting right back in.
0: But, You're so um, clean.
1: <laughs> I'm very, very, I'm your cleanest guest. I would like that on record. But I would, I would say that that's true. And also I've been sort of a very novice runner for the last 40 years. I don't run fast and I don't run far, but I run consistently. And my best runs are always when I'm thinking about anything but the fact that I'm running. So I can sort through a million different things and come up with a million different ideas when I'm on a run. The third thing for me that is an absolute reset button that my clients have benefited from, and certainly I have, has always been travel. You know, I can be anywhere that's not what I know has always been a huge source of inspiration for me creatively and not just sort of looking at a color combination and saying, Oh, I'm going to try that color combination that I saw in a, in that souk in Connecticut, but really just being out of my element and a little uneasy and looking at, you know, what pots and pans are being sold in the local market and what the, least expensive textile is, that um, the most utilitarian thing in a South American country, wherever I am. So that's always been a reset button. My husband, every morning wakes up before the entire household, goes through the house, lights candles, then sits down by himself without his computer, and just sits. And I have watched how incredible that is because I'll be still half asleep and I'll come down the stairs two hours later and he'll have already solved a million things or have like a list of stuff for me to address. And it is always really well thought out and largely very creative. So I wish I had that kind of pull to ceremony um, as he does, Mm -hmm. because he's very ceremonial in that way, but I don't.
0: Right. But you're in the shower a lot, so that's also good. I, yeah,
1: well, I'm running, and then I ha- then you're sort of obliged to shower.
0: <laughs> true. <laughs> so, um, who's the one architect on your bucket list you'd you'd want to work with?
1: Maybe John Pawson, because I've never had the opportunity to do um, work in such a spare, modernist, minimalist. Exquisitely crafted space as his spaces are. But I tend to like architecture of the past more than I like contemporary or modern architecture.
0: Interesting. I'm going to see if I can make an introduction. We can work on a project. Um, I would love it. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's amazing. Really, really incredible. Um, understated, quiet, calming, you know, less is more. The devil is in the details and, you know, his level of attention to detail is incredible. And I've always
1: wondered what a project of John Pawson's would be like if there were just a few elements of ancient materials mixed in, like a really incredible old hearthstone or salvaged stone floors in a foyer or, you know, something like that, even old hardware. If you could find an old hardware schedule or, or something. I just, I I think there's something about that contrapposto, like the, the mix of the idea of his beautiful plaster or reveals at, at every floor and around every doorway. But what would that look like with an 18th century doorknob?
0: Yeah, sounds beautiful. Also, well, it kind of reminds me a little bit, I saw there was a building Julian Schnabel did down in the West village I don't know if you yeah. ever saw that but sure be yeah um that was also a magnificent project um I don't know what what your description made me think of that for some reason but there were elements of like simplicity and then it's when when there was something special it kind of you know, your eye wasn't distracted from it it allowed it to have its moment of yeah. glory you yeah know, and 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 it made not it even more dis- powerful
1: not that dissimilar than you know the work of Excel Revort, or, you know, there's definitely people who are out there doing really incredible things. I just, I'm just so drawn to old spaces. I always have been.
0: What's your most valuable item in
1: your home? We've sort of edited in our own way to sort of live with the best things that we can afford. It kind of goes all the way down to like flatware or coffee mugs or napkins, dinner napkins and, and such. But my favorite things sort of always change. I'm kind of an inveterate collector. I'm always sort of buying and selling and and moving things around. But there's an incredibly beautiful, extremely simple chest of drawers by a Swedish designer from the 1930s that we have in the foyer of our home in, in the West Village. And um, it is hands down my favorite piece of furniture. I've ever owned. I, I stare at how beautifully it was made.
0: Is it the aesthetic or the, the memory attached to some association with it? Or is it the functionality of it? Or it's all of it's the above?
1: definitely not the functionality. Don't care. Because it's, you know, sort of, it holds our, like, napkin rings and, so, and things for entertaining. Um, it's the simplicity and the craftsmanship and also um, just how understated it is. It's it's actually quite a valuable piece of furniture, but it's it's so so simple. And a lot of the simple furniture that that people collect the French nineteen fifties, the industrialist, the post industrialist furniture that is so expensive. Uh, Jean Prouvé and Perriand and Matthew Madigo, many of that those pieces which I, I like were designed for schools and factories and. You know, the Jean Array, Pierre Jean chair, the wood chair with the cane seat that we see all the time and just a beautiful piece of furniture was designed for schools and municipal buildings in India. And so this Swedish chest was not designed for any of that. It was designed for residential. There were very few made. Um, and And there's something really beautiful to me about that. So it's a little bit the story of it and the history of right. it mixed with the, the form and the fact that, you know, we also got a really good deal. So
0: that makes me happy. Right. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, what you're doing in the future. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how you create spaces and where those go and how they, the shift in what we do and how we do it is reflected in your design and, you know, every place that I've seen or, you know, had the fortunate, been fortunate enough to walk in that you've designed is like really, it it kind of transcends the materiality. It's putting it together. It's really like a beautiful framework and, of, and it connects to you on an emotional level. And I Thank think that's, that's really something that not a lot of people have. I think it is a God-given talent. You know, yeah, taste is a relative term, but… Not everyone has it. Some people can appreciate it, but it's it's very difficult to kind of express and put those things together. And you have that talent. And I look forward to seeing what you and Jeremiah and your company produces for the next 50 years, um, well, at least. Thank you. Thank you. And
1: if we have the ever have the opportunity, I, I think what you've done with CORE is transcend real estate in a way that is very open about how important design is. And how, how I've worked with several people, actually, in your company, and I've watched how, how deeply ingrained they are in the design process, in the marketing process, in thinking of creative ways that aren't for cable, but for actual real people to find this place that we all call home. So it's a bit of a mutual admiration society.
0: Yeah, well thank thank you so much. I mean, we take that responsibility very seriously. You know, the home is your most important asset. It's where you spend most of your time. It's everything you said. It's your safe haven. It's, you know, an expression of who you are. And, you know, that's a responsibility we don't take lightly. Just like we believe no two people are the same. You know, we believe that no two homes are the same, no two clients are the same. And, you know, that customized boutique approach is something that resonates with the way that we you know, handle our business. And I think that that's very similar to the way you are. Absolutely. But really, thank you so much. Um, enjoy the rest of, of the day. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I'm looking forward to a project together and hopefully it'll be with John Pawson. Amazing.
1: I'll just, even if it's, as long as it's with Emily, I'm fine. Oh, that's a given. <laughs> that, that's a given. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thanks because so much. She, she'd kill me if it wasn't. <laughs> she um, would
1: kill you actually. She knows where you live. I assume. <laughs> exactly she does but
0: thank you so much and congratulations on all your success and and all the best of success for your future thank you my great pleasure all right take care thanks